Okay, everybody. Um, Alassie Zava is a junior researcher at the Institute of Oriental Manuscripts in St. Petersburg, where she works both with the Mongolian and Tibetan collections of the Institute. As a manuscriptologist, she works at several cataloging projects, including the compilation of the catalog of the Tibetan text from Karakoto, preserved at the Institute of the Oriental Manuscripts, Russian Academy of Sciences. The Tangut and Chinese texts uh, from Karakoto have already been studied extensively by Russian and foreign scholars, and several catalogs and facsimile editions of many of them were published. Um, the Tibetan part of this, uh, also known as Kozlov's collection, um, by contrast, remains largely unknown to Western academia. And one of the most famous Tibetan texts kept at the IOM, uh, namely XT67, uh, uh, belongs to it. And so Allah is going to introduce us to this text. And her talk is also based on a forthcoming um, article containing a translation of the Emperor's postscript to the book. And without further ado, Ala, start your screen share. Let's go. Good evening, everybody. Um, the Chinese philosopher Mencius said that men must be decided on what they will not do, and then they are able to act with vigor in what they ought to do. Following this uh, wise words, I will start my story about the first Tibetan block print defining what this book is not. Firstly, in historical context, it is not the very first specimen of printing in the Tibetan script. Prints and stamps with the Tibetan script used for transcribing Dharani texts were circulating in Central Asia since the earliest times. One of the most remarkable examples being this protective circle from Dunhuan. It is rather natural because creation of a printed book in, a, in the full sense of the word requires a number of preliminary attempts. Pioneers of printing practiced and sharpened their technique, uh, replicating small texts that had, in the first instance, practical importance. This is also true for the legendary Gutenberg Bible, whose appearance was preceded by pamphlets, school books, and indulgences. But due to its aesthetic qualities and complexity, it is the Gutenberg Bible that bears the honorable title of the first book printed in Europe. Returning to the question, what this book is not. Also, it is not something that lies at the origins of the block printing in Tibet itself, because on a wide scale, it developed much later, only in the 15th century. So what is it then? In fact, this book is a peculiar phenomenon pertinent to the Tangut culture. Tangut state was wiped off the face of the earth long ago, but since its emergence in the beginning of 11th century, until its fall under the onslaught of the Mongols in the 13th century, it was a powerful domain competing with its neighbors, the Sun and the Lao empires. One Tangut poet described the position of his people in the surrounding world as follows. Tanguts go forward bravely and boldly. Ketans 
are famous for their slow moves. Tibetans, they worship Buddhist monks mostly. Chinese, each and all, love secular books. Tengut Empire itself was polyethnic, and a considerable portion of the empire's population consisted of Tibetans who spoke their own language. But as long as Tibetan was the language of Dharma, it also held a special position in the Tengut state. This position was secured by the Tengut law code. For example, Tengut, Chinese, and Tibetan citizens were equal in the sense that all of them could be preceptors of Buddhist communities, but only upon meeting certain conditions. Let's read the article number 779 from the revised laws of heavenly prosperity, because it is crucial. If among the Tengut, Chinese and Tibetan young men, there are some that are well-versed in sutras and gathas, then those among them who already had accepted the rules of behavior can be assigned to the positions of preceptors at the principal imperial civil secretariat. All the 11 sutras and gathas that must be memorized by heart by the candidates are listed below and must be read according to the established rules. Candidates should define their rules of behavior, and if the one who is well-versed in sutras and gathas agrees with his assignment to the position, it should be reported to the superior authority, and he must become a monk, the one who left his family. Now let's take a look at the list of the Tibetan texts to memorize in case if you decide to become a preceptor of Buddhist community in Sisa. Number one, Prajna Paramita scripture for humane kings who wish to protect their states. Number two, chanting the names of Manjushri. Number three, the 10 great vows of Bodhisattva Samantabhadra. Number four, the confession of downfalls to the 35 Buddhas. Number five, the heart of the perfection of wisdom. Number six, Gathas dedicated to the prosperity and protection of the state. Number seven, the 25th chapter of the gateway to every direction about the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara from the Lotus Sutra. Number eight, Prajna Parameta Stotra or hymn to the perfection of wisdom. Number nine, Dharani of the victorious Ushnisha Vijaya. Number 10, Rashmi Vimala Vishudha Prabha, or the pure stainless light, Dharani. And finally, number 11, the Diamond Sutra. The majority of these titles can be found at the Tibetan collections of the Tengut origin, but I shall not dwell on it as my story is dedicated to the printed edition, one and only. As we understand from the law code, the Tibetan language was obligatory for a certain level of religious life. In other words, not only Tibetans in Sisel knew and spoke Tibetan. From historical sources, we also know that even the emperors, for example, the great founder of the imperial dynasty, Yuan Hao, knew Tibetan. 
But among all the Tangut emperors, the key figure for us is the emperor Zhengzun, perhaps the most devoted to Buddhism and the most long living and long ruling. In one of the colophons, he is praised in the following manner. When the humane and revered emperor came to the precious throne, he gave Buddhism a new start, causing a renaissance. The three jewels were then awesome in their manifestation. Above mentioned law codes were published during the times of his reign, the period of heavenly prosperity. And uh, to him we are obliged, among other things, for the act of printing of the only extant Tengut Tibetan book that survived until nowadays. Colophons of Tengut texts state that various Buddhist texts were published in Tengut, Chinese and Tibetan in thousands of copies for distribution among the participants of the national Dharma assemblies. But one may wonder, where are these thousands of printed Tibetan books now? It is an established fact that we have at our disposal at least one example of such edition in three languages. But it took almost a century since the Tangut heritage was revealed to the world to understand it. Tangut studies were given a powerful impetus by the discovery of the collection of Tangut Chinese and Tibetan texts in the beginning of the 20th century. The site of Hara Hotel is located on the territory of the present day Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region of China. Once Hara Hotel was known as a city called Edzina and was one of the remotest places of the Tangut Empire. Its Tangut name survived in the book of Marco Polo and in the designation of the river Edzingol. American sinologist John DeFrancis, after visiting the site, wrote the following. Marco Polo knew it as Edzina, a name which is also reflected in the name Edzingol or the Edzin River, which the Mongols give towards the Chinese called Hehe or Black River. The city is Harahoto in Mongolian, Heichen in Chinese, or Black River in both languages. Black River, Black City, Black Gobi. The color was pervasive to the view as well as to the mind. But despite its stated blackness, Harahoto could shed the light on the forgotten culture of the lost empire. Discovery of the dead city is credited to a Burat explorer, Tsokto Badmajapov, who provided uh, famous Russian traveler Kozlov with this information. The latter made the first excavations of the site and found a treasury of ancient texts and Buddhist artifacts immured in the so-called famous Suburgan. The bulk of them were brought to St. Petersburg and are kept now at the Institute of Oriental Manuscripts of the Russian Academy of Sciences and at the State Hermitage Museum. 
Tanguts and Chinese texts from Harahoto have been studied successfully by Russian and foreign scholars, and several catalogs and facsimile editions of many of them were published. The Tibetan part of Kozlov's collection, by contrast, remains largely unknown for the academia. Three years ago, the team, the team of Tibetologists from the Institute of Oriental Manuscripts, headed by Dr. Alexander Sorin, started the cataloging project that will hopefully fill this gap. Meanwhile, the printed booklet has been enjoying worldwide fame already for many years. For the first time, it was, it was presented in public at the exhibition Lost Empire of the Silk Road that was held in 1993 in Switzerland. Three years later, the exhibition catalog was published in Chinese, therefore introducing the item to scholars from China and Japan. During the first decade of the new century, they made a significant contribution to the study of this block print. However, it was yet to be found out that the Tibetan block print has the exact Chinese and Tangut counterparts. I deliberately skipped mentioning names of many scholars because I don't want to overload my story with too many details, but of course I cannot avoid mentioning the contribution made by Professor Shen Weizhun. He was the first to notice the similarities between Tibetan and Chinese versions. I'll quote his article published 10 years ago. Indeed, uh, HT67 is the Tibetan original of the Chinese texts TK164 and TK165. Namely, Avalokiteshvara Dharani Sutra and Ushnishavijaya Dharani Sutra. This identification does not only clarify the origin of the Chinese texts, but also provides the exact date when the HT67 was printed. In case Shidzinbo's claims that HT67 was the earliest print of wooden movable type in the world history, then it is quite certain that this technology appeared in the reign of Zun of the Tangut Kingdom. Well, it was really a breakthrough, but there are some remarks that I should make. Uh, first, the Tibetan book is not the original for the Chinese texts, more probably vice versa, but I prefer the more cautious term counterpart. Secondly, there is no exact date in Chinese texts. Third, it is not the book printed by means of movable type, it is a block print. The missing link here, as you may be already guessed, is a Tangut version of the edition that does contain the exact date. And the date looks and sounds as follows. First year of heavenly prosperity, earth snake. That means the year 1149. Ironically, the links between the Chinese and Tangut versions uh, were already revealed and described by Professor Tatsu Nisida in the introduction to the catalogue of Tangut Buddhist texts some years ago. 
Professor Nisida rightfully assumed that the tangled date is ap applicable to the Chinese edition, where the corresponding part of the postscript is lost. But the Tibetan version remained beyond the scope of his work, so all the three editions were still to be reconsidered as a whole in the future. But it is not that simple, as we will see from the analysis of the postscript or afterward of the edition. Let's check the fragment where the information about the publication is given. At first, in the Tangut and Chinese versions, it is stated that when they cut the blocks, uh, 15,000 copies in Tangut and Chinese languages were printed and presented. In the Tangut and Chinese versions, uh, there are no mentions about the Tibetan language. Uh, meanwhile, in the Tibetan texts, uh, when they cut the blocks, 17,000 of copies were printed and presented. Unfortunately, in the Tibetan texts, the place where the languages of the publication were to be indicated is lost. Besides, the quantity of copies is different. It seems uh, unlikely that the amount of Tibetan texts could exceed the Tangut and Chinese ones in total. It can be assumed that the Tibetan version was printed last of all, and the total number of copies was corrected. The number of Tibetan copies was simply added to the original 15,000. Based on this assumption, we can determine the exact quantity of the Tibetan editions, namely 2,000. And only one of them survived. In fact, uh, uh, if the Tibetan version was printed last of all, it casts doubt to its immutable dating. However, taking into account the very purpose of the publication, distribution to the people at the Dharma gathering, we nonetheless can assume that the Tibetan edition must have been printed almost simultaneously with the others. Now let's talk about what we manuscriptologists lack the most, about the material aspects of the book. How this book was made? Each folio was folded in its center and blank pages of the verse aside were glued to the adjacent folios as it is shown in a scheme where dotted line shows the fold and the hedge shows the adhesive joint. As a result, folded folios formed a western style codex that greatly resembled butterfly format with the only difference that the blank pages could not be seen. Uh, in the course of time, the paper on the folds frayed and folios began to fall apart. Uh, Tibetan lines go from the left page to the right page. That means that in case if we lose uh, right or left page, we have at our disposal only half of the line. That problem occurred in the publication information that we already analyzed. Uh, vertical 
Tangled and Chinese lines in respective editions traditionally go from the right to the left. In all the three editions, foliation or numbering of pages is situated on Baiko, a special place on the fold. Tengut and Chinese have their respective designation, uh, and in the Tibetan edition, Chinese numerals are used. Furthermore, in the Tibetan edition, foliation is additionally, but also in Chinese, is given in the lower margin on either side of the fold. Tengut version has detached remnants of the blue silk cover. The ornamented fabric was dyed with indigo. A Chinese version has three engravings, thematically connected to the Dharani Sutras. Therefore, if we assume that all the three editions were similar or equal, it means that perhaps all of them had nice blue covers and engravings. But maybe more important for us that this uh, 12th century Tibetan book uh, was a codex, uh, the type of book that was rather exotic in the context of Tibetan book culture as a whole. Now, let's discuss the contents. My talk was entitled uh, The Collection of Precious Dharanis but in fact, there are only two Dharani Sutras here, and I'm not absolutely sure if the word collection is appropriate. These two texts are Avalokiteshvara Dharani Sutra and Ushnishavijaya Dharani Sutra. The last and very important part of the edition is the afterword written by the Emperor Genzun. I will say a few words about the second text and its significance, because it will help us in the next passage. Goddess Ushnishavijaya, victorious queen of crowning light, emerged from the brilliant rays of light that crown Buddha. She is a bestower of uh, long life and even immortality, and has the power to prevent untimely death. Her Dharani Sutra contains a story about a young god who was told that he will die in seven days and undergo seven rebirths. As a dog, fox, monkey, snake, vulture, uh, crow, and finally a blind man. Using Indra as an intermediary, the young god who was condemned to death received from the Buddha the practice of Ushnishavijaya, and as a result, he didn't die and lived forever. This story is quite simple, and it is in human nature to desire immortality. So no wonder that plenty of Ushnishavijaya texts and images were recovered from Harahoto by Kozlov and Oral Stein. And as you may maybe remember, Ushnishavijaya Dharani was in the list of the texts or to be memorized to become a preceptor of Buddhist community. Uh, now let's see how much of the text we have at our disposal and how it is distributed among separate items and even separate cities. The Tengut text is complete. The Chinese version is almost complete. All the folios are extant, but some parts 
of the texts are lost, including the much speculated date. The Tibetan text survived only in fragments. Sincerely speaking, we thought initially that we have at our disposal two different books. One of them was at the exhibition and studied or at least seen by many scholars. The other was less popular and seemed to be much more damaged than the first one. Besides, its lower margin differs in size. But one day, reading the manuscript of Usnishvijaya Dharani Sutra from Harahoto, I realized that I am recognizing parts from both books. This version of the text of Usnishvijaya Dharani Sutra is absent in any edition of Tibetan canon, therefore this identification could not be done automatically. But luckily, this sutra is also available as a manuscript. Manuscript texts also helps us reconstruct the numbers of the folios that were absent. These two printed items are intercomplementary. There are no duplicate folios, so we can assume that they originate from one copy. One page from this book was picked up by the expedition of Oral Stain, and now it is kept in the British Library, and I don't think that this is a coincidence. Mm. Finally, the second specimen of Tibetan book that was obviously very much in use consists purely of sacred Buddhist formulae that are traditionally believed to have great magical power. One may suppose that this part was extracted by the owner of the book for making an amulet uh, carrying in a pouch, constant reading, uh, etc. In the table, you can see that uh, Tangled Edition has uh, 23 folios, the Chinese one has 21, and the Tibetan book is the most voluminous of all. The last extant folio has the number uh, 61, but judging from the textological study of the postscript of the book, uh, it could have no less than 70 folios in total. Considering the value of this edition, it seemed tantalizing to translate the third part, namely the postscript written by the Tangut Emperor. Due to fragmentary preservation state of the Tibetan text, it would be impossible without the usage of the complete Tangut version. The translation task was carried out by Japanese scholar Saya Hamanaka and me, and I would like to express my gratitude to my diligent colleague for this fruitful collaboration. Uh, it is not simply a postscript in a sense of editorial work, but postscript aspiration. The Tibetan title is lost and I cannot provide Tibetan words for collation, unfortunately. By writing this postscript, the emperor secured the goals of this three-lingual edition and his intentions laid far beyond uh, providing his people with Buddhist texts. 
In the main body of the postscript, he explicates the benefits that one can get from reading the Harani Sutras. Uh, for example, if the sound is heard, the great exceeding cause will be gained. If the shadow is touched, all the virtuous benefits will be gained. Uh, what we see here is that the order of Tibetan grammar is violated and the word all that naturally should be after the object precedes it. Here the Tibetan translation follows the word order entangled phrase. That means that probably the text was translated by someone to whom the Tibetan was not his mother tongue. And we may also consider the reason of the desire to make translation more literal. One example is nothing. Let's take the second. Tengut and Chinese versions state that uh, Dharani widely aids the creatures and deeply benefits the sentient beings. But in Tibetan, in, it turns out that the Dharani aids the white creatures and benefits deep sentient beings. And the reason is again in following the word or the intended phrase. Besides demonstrating these grammatical deviations, I would like to stress out that the Tibetan version, though fragmentary, absolutely corresponds to the Tengu text in terms of contents. And most likely in, in case of the postscript, the Tibetan text was translated from Tengu, not vice versa. Now let's return to the context, uh, to the contents of the postscript. Uh, the emperor lists many miraculous qualities of the Dharanis and gives promise to read them himself. I also will attach these Dharani sutras on my clothes, will recite Dharani with one-pointed concentration and aspire to have the prominent cause fulfilled. If the emperor used to wear the text on his body, it is no wonder that the citizens of Tengut state followed his example and that the part of the book with the Shnishavijaya has this outworn condition. Then the emperor recounts all his virtuous deeds, such as making fire offerings and mandalas, organizing dharma assemblies and food donation ceremonies. And uh, he states that only few of such good deeds made with respect and true faith can be mentioned, as all cannot be explained. Uh, at this point, unfortunately, we are losing the trace of Tibetan text and must rely only upon the Tengut and Chinese versions. Then the emperor formulates his aspirations. They are addressed to his father who deceased 10 years ago. He aspires that his father could transcend three realms and ride on the cloud of Dharma, that he could avoid the four forms, forms of birth. Besides, he wishes that the deceased emperor could silently help the world to be governed peacefully by itself without any action. This aspiration involves the concepts of uh, Uwei, or effortless action, 
inaction, an important concept in Chinese statecraft and Taoism. So we can catch a glimpse how multifaceted were the knowledge and worldview of the author. Then uh, the author expresses desire that his descendants would flourish increasingly and the people living in the four directions of the Tangut state would sleep peacefully without fear of war. At last, his aspiration is finalized with Gathas or verses. There are 12 lines in total and each consists of seven syllables. The verses summarize briefly the contents and intentions of the edition. They don't add any new information, but I will quote one out of my respect to the emperor. One gains fulfillment of the things he's supposed to want or hope for. Relying upon the heart and the wishes, all matters get accomplished. Uh, in this fragment, the Chinese collation also uh, leaves us and we stay only with Tibetan text. And the verses are followed by the colophon that contains the date and the title of the emperor. Basically, this is all, but uh, I would like to repeat that this postscript is an interesting example of translation from Tengut to Tibetan and can serve as a good source of seeking correspondences for Buddhist terms that are numerous. Um, many scholars from all over the world, including your humble narrator, were interested in this booklet and all the books dealing with Tibetan printing written in recent years mention it. And I hope my survey has not increased the entropy of smaller and larger mistakes that surround its history. I'm in love with Tangut proverbs, uh, so I cannot finish my speech without quoting one. Even a chairman does not shamanize for himself. Even a bright lantern cannot light up its own interior. So even, a, even if I were a bad chairman, thank you for listening to me. And I would like to send my best to my colleagues Dr. Alexander Zorin and Dr. Anna Turanskaya, with whom I work on the collection of Tibetan texts from Harahoto. And I'm grateful to the Institute of Oriental Manuscripts for the privilege to touch these objects. And I owe a lot to my Japanese co-author Saya Hamanaka for the deep dive into Tengu texts and very interesting translation work. At last but not at least, I thank Daniel for inviting me to participate in the Tibetan Graduate Studies Seminar. Thank you. Thank you.